0: Welcome to Black Diplomats, a foreign policy podcast about safety and security. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. Today, I'm wrapping up my talk with Pam Keith. In this episode, we talk about how living abroad shapes our worldviews and what it was like for her to run for office in the 2020 election cycle as a black female candidate. In case you didn't hear part one of our conversation, please find it easily on any of your favorite podcast platforms. As we shared in part one, Pam ran for Congress out of Florida's 18th Congressional District as the Democratic nominee and she is a U.S. Navy veteran who served as a judge's advocate. She was the first African-American woman to run a qualified campaign for U.S. Senate in Florida history back in 2016. Hope y'all enjoyed the conversation. me about living abroad and what's and how that has informed your worldview and how you look at things here in America because I think living outside of America it helps you to understand I feel like and it's only something that you get when you actually experience it and I'm not talking and it's okay fine if you're able to visit some place here or there but the both of us have lived outside of the country, and I feel like you look you you your brain functions differently. It does. Yeah.
1: Let me tell you. Let me tell you. Okay. So I was born in Turkey. I lived in Morocco and Syria. So those were back to back assignments for my dad, right? And. The first thing you need to understand about that is that when you're an American overseas you live in government housing and you know like you know diplomatic housing whatever we had a nanny we had a house and her nanny and her husband were sort of our house domestic help her children were in our household my first experience with power was in my household and my mother had power over my nanny my father had power over the household so we were the top dogs in my first experiences And, and when we traveled, we traveled through the diplomatic lanes, we were treated as dignitaries. My first exposure as a child from zero to about six and a half years old was that we were the badass. We were the, we were the important, we were the Americans. Americans were different. Americans were special, but also Yeah, yeah. there was people, Mm people heard To us, there was something magical about Americans being amongst us. And so, my first consciousness and cognizance was not as the person at the bottom of the social pecking order, it was as a person at the top of the social pecking order until my parents divorced and my mom moved back to Oakland. Right. And that's when I got my first exposure to the social structures of the United States of America. But I was in my full self and consciousness by then, I was almost seven years old right and so when i encountered racial dynamics in oakland was pretty bad afterwards like we lived in oakland for about a year not even a year and a half and then my mom got a, a scholarship to the university of kentucky we moved to lexington kentucky and that's where i finally got a full on experience of racial dynamics in our country and the thing is because I was already in my full self, believing myself, you know, I was like, I am an American. I have a diplomatic passport.
0: You know, do you know
1: who I am? <laughs> like, you know, like, I, that
0: kind of, I, that kind of. I know exactly where you're coming from because, I, because I did Fulbright and I did a bunch of programs that were affiliated with the state department. We were under the embassy. So I know exactly what you're talking about, but go ahead, finish.
1: Right, so in that dynamic though, I, Saw America's racial dynamics, but I also saw how artificial they are. Right. Right. And so Because I understood them to be Absolutely artificial They did not permeate They did not they did not color how I walked in the world That doesn't mean I wasn't affected by them. Of course I was But I did not take them on as 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 just the way things are Mm -hmm. right and I came up against young Black people, my age, Black people, whose entire sense of self was developed in this dynamic and who had this, this innate and but way manobled their conscious knowledge deference to that system. Right. And so I was always the uppity one because I was always the one that was like, what the hell? Why would you do that? Like, you know, like all of these things that I was told black people do this and black people don't do this and do that, I was never colored by that. Right. I was never colored by that because I was always an American first.
0: No, let me let me ask you a question, you know, and, and I normally um I don't think I've ever asked this question on the show before, but because of how you grew up outside of the country and you went to Oakland, then you went to Kentucky. When was your first nigga moment?
1: Oh, well, the first nigga moment was when I was in California because right as I was getting, you know, and, and I had a really diff- difficult transition there because, like, my parents were divorced, my dog died. I, you know, we were, I had I learned how to read and write in French. I spoke pidgin English at mm. best, right? My first language was Turkish, so I was considered slow and got a lot of problems. But you know what came out when I was when I was just starting elementary school? A, a show called Roots. Okay. <laughs> okay, right. And so I found myself and and I was having sort of emotional issues with a lack of power and control, right? I was having because I did not want to be in Oakland. I wanted to be back in Damascus with my you know like I, and so I was having problems with this sense of lack of control. And so right before this incident, um I saw you know my my parents are trying to get me to understand television because I didn't understand television. I thought, you know, I, I didn't because we didn't grow up with it. I didn't understand it. so, you know, my first experience with television, the first thing I ever saw on TV was a Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs commercial. And I was screaming at my mom to help us get the bird out. of the bus, <laughs> right? And my mom is trying to explain to me that that's not real. So she says everything on TV is not real, right? And so she leaves me and my brother plopped in front of the TV while she's dealing with her emotional issues, going through her divorce with her mom. And then, you know, we're watching and then it. And then a documentary about the Holocaust comes on. And I and that particular segment was about all these little baby Jewish Jewish children emaciated. And and I, I I start saying, that's all fake. Mommy says everything on TV is not true. And Vincent, my brother, is like, no, 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 this is different. This is real. Mm-hmm. This happened. And I'm like, no way, mommy says it's all fake. So I run into the kitchen and I'm like, mommy, tell Vincent it's all fake. Mommy said it's all make believe, it's not true. And she's sitting there trying to tell me that, no, in fact, this did happen. And I start to lose my shit. Because now I'm starting to tell mommy, we need to go find those children. We need to go help those kids. We need to bring them here. I'll, I'll share my toys. We need to get those kids. We need to give them some food. They look like they haven't eaten. Why don't they have clothes? And I'm sitting here having this deep conversation. My mom is trying to explain to me that this happened 50 years ago. But I, it's just not processing for me. So I keep running back into the kitchen with a new idea on what to do with the, for these kids. Right. And and once I begin to start to process that there's nothing that can be done for these kids, I lose it emotionally. I am just bawling and bawling and bawling and bawling because I just I could not believe that somebody would do something like this to yeah, children. Yeah. Right. And I th- there was nothing I could do about it. So it was like maybe a couple months later, roots come out and there's that scene with LeVar Burton getting whipped. That was in for me. Because I was like, I just started to lose my shit. Because again, here's a situation where there's this gross injustice, this horrible thing happening, and there's nothing I can do. And I am like, ah, losing my shit. I go to school a you know, day or two later, and this kid named Jonathan Weiswasser, and I will never forget him, my dear, decides that he's going to chase me around the schoolyard with palm fronds to whip me. I went off on that, Jonathan. I went off on him i had to be pulled off of him i i would not stop hitting him i was on top of him and i would not stop like every ounce of my rage and my anger and my why did he do it because he saw it on tv he saw it on tv and he was like oh your roots you know slaves we whipped the slaves and i was like I just lost it. So that was my first experience, really, just confronting the injustice of slavery, right? And the fact that this was something that I could not fix. I, and, and I just, I'm, and I carried this rage. So if you think of a defining moment in your life, that was a defining moment of my character because I found that A, I am the person who wants to get in the fight and stop whatever's going on, and B, I do not tolerate well-being for, for sworn from doing that, because it frustrates me. And so that was the first one. But the first time that I really got that in your face nigga moment was in Lexington. You know, we were, my mom called a realtor and asked for a house near the University of Kentucky campus, because she had a full scholarship. The, the realtor didn't under, didn't realize my mother was black because she didn't sound like a black woman. She was calling from California on a full scholarship to Lexington. Woman didn't realize my mother was black. We show up and the and the realtor is like, "Oh no, this house is not for you. It's the wrong neighborhood. You won't be comfortable here." And I I could sense my mom's reaction. I didn't understand what was going on other than my mom was angry. Right. But then I go to school the next day. And the class is completely segregated. White kids in the front black kids in the back
0: what year was this
1: 1977 okay right and there's one black kid that is put right front mid-center me Mm. and miss smith and that was her name she had cat's eye glasses she wore mumus because she was pregnant so she Mm -hmm. wore this mumu um and miss smith conducted the entire class as if black children were not in the classroom she taught to the white kids she ignored the black kids and she gave c's to every black child in the class She didn't grade our papers, she didn't grade our exams, she did not want the school to be integrated. And if you look at the history, Lexington was one of the last cities to actually integrate. And so my mom gets a report card with Pankey that says straight C's and she knows straight up something wrong because that's not her kid. I am an A student on the stuff I like and a D student on the stuff I don't. So, you know. And she expected some comment about Pam being too precocious and not willing to stay in her seat, and, you know, because that was who I was as a kid. She gets nothing, no comments, just she, 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 she knows this is wrong. She goes to confront Ms. Smith, and Ms. Smith starts to tell my mother, who's at University of Kentucky on an academic scholarship for a master's in economics, that she's doing me a favor. No. Yeah. I think. So that was when I saw my mom confront racism. She stayed. She She. Got in Miss Smith's face, got in the principal's face, showed up at the at the you know she had multiple meetings at the school, showed up at the school board meeting at the and, the, and by the way, this was a school that still did corporal punishment, so one time Miss Smith tried to corporally punish me, oh my mother lost <laughs> it like this so yeah. this became a major thing. this became a major thing, and my mom kept pushing it until Miss Smith went on maternity leave, she gave, she left the classroom and Miss Poindexter was put in her place, and Miss Poindexter was the first and only Black female teacher at that school. And, and it was in Miss Poindexter's class that I started to realize, like, okay, everything's going to be okay. And then, of course, from then, I, I moved back to my dad and went to a different scenario. But that was the circumstance in which I actually confronted racism in real time, was in Kentucky. And you know what? It was the Black people who told me I couldn't be around white people as much as the white people were racist towards me. Mm. Black people were warning me. Oh, you don't do this. Oh, you don't go there. oh you can't play with so-and-so. You know, I had a little play friend, her name was Charity. And and when Charity's mom realized that I was black, she prohibited Charity from playing with me. And I think Charity was an abused child. I think all three of her, her and her two sisters were abused. but. I was the only friend Charity had, she was the only friend I had. So we were both crestfallen when we were, di- when we were prohibited from playing with each other. But my, my mom had to try to explain to me why I couldn't go over to Charity's house and convince Charity's mother that I'm a nice girl.
0: It's, it's, it's interesting how you talk about that full circle, right? So you come as this kid that was born in Turkey and you have all these diplomatic um, benefits, you know, cause I, I know this because as a Peace Corps volunteer, one of the things that we would do, I was a Peace Corps in Georgia. And sometimes if we wanted a break from our little villages and where we had six hours of electricity a day, that's that was back in 2003, basically. Um, and we didn't have any running water. So some of us were in real kind of rural circumstances. Some of the diplomats would say, you can hang out at our place and take a shower. So that would be a big deal for us that we didn't have to pay. We would go to the diplomat's house because they felt sorry for us <laughs> in a way. And so they say, you can you can stay with us and you would see how they lived and they had the security guards and they were driven everywhere. It's a whole different world, right? And it was situations where, oh, they have, it just basic stuff, like whatever type of problems that were going on in the country and that gated community, you didn't see it. You saw it on television. Mm -hmm. If there were power outages, that was someplace else in the city because that gated community because they were diplomats. They had 24-hour electricity because if one generator went off, the other one kicked in and the third one kicked in. So there was not a bleep in the normalcy of their lives. It was as if they were in America more or less. And then they were getting regular salaries, where they could actually save up money. I know a lot of people who were diplomats who saved money through the decades, and they were able to buy homes when they returned to the states because they had they they didn't have to spend you know paychecks at, at at you know in certain times of the year because the cost of living was so low in most of the places where they were deployed. But I'll tell you like a brief story. before I move on to the final segment about you your career is that going you know what you want to do next is that I remember I was in Kiev back in 2000 and I believe it was 2003 not 2003 I'm sorry 2009 I was a Fulbright and I had an orientation that the Fulbright gave us and then we had somebody from the state department to say okay you're technically under our jurisdiction and so that meant that we weren't technically diplomats, but as far as anything else...
1: You had diplomatic immunity, more or less. Like, they were going to protect you and and give you the the, the cover of yeah, American yes, government. Yes,
0: exactly. That's what it was. Exactly. And so, if there was some evacuation, they always had this little map that they had us fill out. Where can a helicopter drop where we could pick you up? So, they, they, so they exactly. had all this stuff for us, and... Being black, back then in, in Kiev, they had a whole bunch of these right-wing nationalists that were just roaming around the streets and everything. It was a real screwed-up situation. And after the Fulbright people gave us their orientation, I went with the Africans who actually studied here and lived here for years and had wives and stuff, and they would give me their orientation. They're like, be careful with the white girls, you know, like the suave Ukrainian women. A lot of them brought that up because... They have a lot of the guys had all these screwed up stereotypes about black men in their package and all this other stuff. And I know it sounds ridiculous to the people who are listening, but this is really what they tell you when you come here. And it's really common. And so just being just having that peripheral uh, vision of where you always are. This is where the skinheads hang out. And also, if you're ever stopped by a cop, don't speak in Russian. So. I stopped counting the number of times I was stopped by police. I I stopped at around 30. There would be days where I would be stopped three times. It's not happening right now, but when I first got here, it was really bad. And the thing that saved me most of the time was my U.S. passport. So. But there are some people who thought that it was fake and they say, oh, you're somebody from the continent of Africa and you're some undocumented immigrant and you're trying to get over to Europe, so they have all these screwed up views about Africans, and that's another thing we don't have time to talk about right now. But there's a difference between how a lot of these folks treat you if you're a Black American versus somebody from the continent of Africa or a country where they feel like they don't have to care about them, and it's really screwed up. But I remember one time this cop, uh, I was going on the train, but before I got before I got through the um, before I got to the escalator, a cop pulled me into a uh a holding facility a holding room and he spoke to me in russian he Looked like he was 19 years old fresh out of the academy and he and his partner they look at me in russian and they say you're a nigger and you're bringing drugs into our country give me your drugs right now i'm pretending like i don't know what the fuck they're talking about i'm like uh, excuse me what are you talking about i don't understand you and so we went through this whole thing for about 30 minutes and where they're trying to pressure me into giving them money and I didn't do it and they let me go. The point is that I went, uh, I told the embassy about what was happening and they were steaming, right? They're like, you know what, Terrell, who's that cop? We gonna go pick that person up like right now because the embassy here has a very strong relationship with police. And so they're like, that's OK. We're going to pick him up. What's his name? Where are he at? Right. And they like end up the, the ambassador. Like they were steaming. And so I didn't I was so worried because that's the thing in America. I'm so frozen about dealing with cops that I just wanted to get out of that situation alive. But what I learned was that these cops here, they're not going to really necessarily shoot you. So there's a way in which you can work with them, you know, and, and like, you know, assert yourself in ways that won't get you killed that would probably get you hurt in New York, for example. And so the embassy said, okay, you know what we're gonna do? I'm gonna give you this card. Like the, their chief security officer gave me this card. It was in Ukrainian and English. And it said, you know, it says, if you stop this person, call the embassy immediately and a Marine will come and deal with the issue. Now, most of the people who were stopping me, profiled me, and they were looking for, um, they were trying to get a bribe, right? <clears throat> They would see that car. They're like, "I'm so sorry. I didn't know who you were. Forgive me. You know, is everything okay?" They were like, they lost their state. Sh- like they were scared shitless because they didn't want that marine. Because that American marine will eventually talk to their commanding officer in their district, exactly. right? And and exactly. and they didn't want those problems. And so I know exactly where you're coming from. Like that American passport and a lot. Ooh, it gets you a lot of. Gets you a whole lot of benefits, you know,
1: and not just that. I mean, you know, my father as he got up and up in the up in his career, eventually he became a United States ambassador. My father had exposure to extremely wealthy people because, unlike in the United States, where your most of your diplomats are a career,
0: and tell us where he served by the way.
1: He he was U.S. ambassador to gutter. um, but he served in Cairo. He served in Paris. He was a uh, uh, DCM in Cairo. I mean, like he 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 had very senior roles, and at that point, you know a lot of other countries their diplomatic corps is principally their 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 aristocracy you know so they're not just diplomats also very wealthy people and so it was, so I got invited into parties and receptions and so forth you know, with you know tagging along with my dad that were thrown by some of the wealthiest people on the planet right i mean i got I, I gotta tell you, the the, the emir of Qatar, um, you know, Hamad Al uh, Thani, at the time, Hamad Al Thani, um, was the crown prince, um, and his father was the emir. And my father was closer to the to the crown prince, and the father was ill and also very retrograde, um, and he was out of the country getting medical care in England or something. And the son basically took the country in a bloodless coup. Because of his relationship with my dad, my dad understood that this guy was the better person for the United States to work with. My father calls back to DC and says, no, we want to, we want to be with the Crown Prince, not the emir." And so the United States was the first country to recognize Hamid as the proper emir. And because we recognized him, we built an incredible friendship between the United States and Gutter, which still pays off today. That all happened on my dad's watch as ambassador to Qatar. But when I went to visit my dad there and, and, and you know, we were fated by the emir himself. We got invited to his weekend house. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I played tennis with him, one of his daughters. And so I got exposed to the kind of over-the-top opulent wealth um, as a child, as a teenager, as a young person, that made me unimpressed with wealth that we have here in the state.
0: Yeah, like, right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Do it
1: for me. And some people just have this deep, ensconced desire to have that kind of incredible, opulent wealth. And I spent enough time around people like that to realize I want their life. I want their life. I mean, the, you know, the girl that I was playing tennis with was probably 15 or 16 years old. You know, I didn't want her life. She's gonna get married. She was going to be married off to somebody she probably didn't like, didn't want to be married to. That was her prospects. Her prospects were given to her and utterly controlled for her, right? Now, granted, she would never want for anything except freedom.
0: Yeah, Yeah, freedom. That's right. Yeah. So to me, like, so I saw
1: her. Right. Like, I saw her life. I didn't want her life. Right. I saw the the indolent, opulent, wealthy who who could have six Maseratis or seven, well, the difference between the six and the seventh didn't mean much, right? Like, so it just became, I began to see that, that, that there's, there's not a ton of to be desired in that life because everybody around you is, is, is a freaking limpet. They're all sucking off of you. Everybody's obsequious to you because your money can do things for people. When your money does things for people, your money becomes your power. But then again, it's what draws people to you as well. And so what happens is that there's always this underpinning about the genuineness of the relationship because the money always permeates that dynamic. And I didn't feel like that was, you know, to me, that was just like, I'm not sure that that's anything good. So um, I've never been a person that's been all that impressed by wealth or power dynamics like that because I, at a young age, I got to see through that. Right, I get to see kind of cut through that and see how this sort of how power itself, power to well, is such a, an incredibly interesting concept because it is almost always by consent. You almost always consent to, the, to, to treating someone as if they have power over you. Now, there may be some reality baked in that. It may be that their money really can make a difference in your life, or it could be that their power could put you in jail. But as two naked people standing there, right, you have to, in your mind, decide you're giving somebody power over you. I, I thought about it a lot as I was in the military, because it's a, it's a thing you turn on. It's also a thing you can turn off, Right. In your mind, when I joined the Navy, I remember the moment I decided that everybody with this kind of colors on their shirt, I'm gonna salute, right? That is a choice. I wanted to be a part of this structure and I took on at a very deep level a respect for all of that authority. And so the, 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 the flow of authority within me was, became absolutely natural, where I accepted being, having authority over people junior to me and took on that personality that I am the officer, you're the elected. you're going to do what I say.
0: I want to transition on to the last part where we're talking about running for office and what that meant for you because you know you're 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 coming from this experience where you had this hierarchical level of power. And now you're taking on this very uh this you you, you ran to take on this incredible responsibility of of running for office because I, I interviewed you for the route for your house mm-hmm. race. And mm-hmm. I remember the first time you ran for Senator and I know you talked about the lessons you learned from that. And then now in this cycle, you won your primary, right? Because a lot of people didn't think that you were winning the primary, but you did. And I saw the other folks who won, you know, like who are running against you. And I said, oh, I th- you know, Pam can beat them. And I saw those other folks and you, you you know, and, and you won and you know, you didn't, you came short in the uh, general, but I just want to talk about what did you learn, you know, about that, about running out of the 18th district. What did you learn about this particular, uh, what did you learn about this particular cycle? And what, are, what, what does a person do after uh, they run for office, but don't quite get there?
1: So there were a few really interesting dynamics about my race. You know, for the longest time people thought that this district was very competitive. It was a red to blue, it was a battleground, and the party always invested heavily in this district until I won the primary. At which point they decided they no longer wanted to invest in this district principally because of tensions within so so I learned a lot about the inside workings of the DCCC, which is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which is the p- component of the DNC that that runs congressional campaigns and it invests in those that they think are competitive that they're going to de- mostly they defend their own members that's the principal role of the DCCC but then they also decide where they want to expand the 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 map and and they invest in those districts where they want to expand the map they don't invest in every district and a lot of what their decision is based on is what they consider to be competitive right but i was running a competitive race the polling in my district had me up by two points right before the election. Um, we went into election day at parity and turnout between Democrats and Republicans, right? 70,000 Republicans showed up on election day that have never voted in our district before. That was in addition. So so we were expecting a, an election ta- turnout between 20, 30 Republicans, uh, th- 20, 30,000 Republicans and, you know. Eight to 10,000 Democrats because so many people had voted by mail or voted early. They showed up 70,000 Republicans on election day. We don't know where they came from. Because the most prior to that, so, so Brian Mass, my opponent, won in 2018 with 210,000 Republicans, 210, Republicans, you know, 210,000 votes. And the Democrat had 150. So you're looking at 360 right i got 185 86000 democratic votes 186000 that's 36 more than we ever had before that's big i
0: thought you know it was crazy. No, that is big for a tur- yeah that's that's right? definitely big yeah right? for a house race and that yeah that's for definitely big race, yeah that's
1: huge that's huge right? yeah he turned out he wins with 280000 votes that's, like I said, 70,000 more than I've ever done, and most of that surge came on election day, but we didn't see it on the ground. So we were kind of mystified by all of this. But I will also tell you that I was put in a situation where I was fighting for this battleground with zero help from the party because DCCC decided they did not want to invest in this race. They thought they had this, right? There was a kind of hubris that was going around the D trip at the time that they were going to pick up seats on the west coast of Florida and they don't need Florida, they can win with other states and I kept saying this is really stupid because if Donald Trump loses Florida, he has no path. If he wins Florida, he can use it as a springboard to challenge Midwestern states and so on. I said, look, if you put this in the blue, it's over. They didn't want, they figured that is too extensive, it's too big, we don't have the infrastructure, we're just not going to bother. Also, there were tensions between me and and some of the folks in the Democratic caucus because they didn't like that I challenge my own party, which I do. They consider me not a team player, which, by the way, I find very weird because I'm a reliable supporter of democratic policy and democratic power. You want to talk about not team players? Talk about Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. Not team players. Right. They are cannibalizing Democratic power, I would never do that, right? So they're mad because I criticized Nancy Pelosi over not impeaching Donald Trump on the Mueller report. And I was infuriated by it because she was saying, oh, it's not worth it. And I'm like, with a bully, it is always worth it to clap back. It is always worth it to punch a bully in the mouth because that's the only thing that makes a bully think twice about the next time. You let it go, they are empowered to do worse. And I was
0: right. You were, and, and I want to. I want to add. I want to um, talk to you about this a little bit. This is interesting because I've reported on this, um, and my own people, who are actually elected officials. So what I got from the inside of this, it was that, okay, you know the obvious stuff. Like at fundamentally, at the um, fun- fundamentally, you you um, you you're correcting that they felt like they had this in the bag, but the top leadership. And remind me of the chairwoman's name. Bustos. Yeah, Bustos. her name is Sherry no. Bustos was, right? Um, former chairwoman Bustos of the DCCC. There was uh, the conversations that I had about her or concerning you know her leadership was that it was short-sighted, um, that it was lazy, and that neither she nor the top level people at the party understood the movement dynamics that were going on and working with them, which what what happened in in Georgia should have been happening in Florida. Right. Absolutely. Right. And, and that's, that's, that's the whole thing, but you weren't the only person who I spoke to who ran and either they won or they barely, won. I'm talking about black women, right? Let's I'm t- talking about black women. They had similar complaints, that you had i looked at your race and i'm like "Uh, this is not in the back what i was expecting from you i was hoping that you will win by like two points or three points i definitely believe that that race was going to be close i thought it was but
1: i I, it could have been so much closer terrell because even though he turned out all these additional people my war chest for my race was 1.4 million dollars and i raised Every dime of that my.
0: Oh, I believe you. Yeah. <laughs>
1: right? Right? Yeah. Without being put on red to blue, this district was on red to blue in 2018. They refused to put me on red to blue, right? Which would have hurt no one, right? Without a single dime from the trip, right? Mass had eight, seven, eight million million to spend. So you know what he did? He spent the entire election cycle demonizing me, saying that I was a thug, that I was a radical extremist socialist, right? Now, if I had some money, I could have made the case about him, which, by the way, he encouraged his 30-year-old campaign manager to have sex with as many 15-year-old girls as he could. That was a huge scandal that came out up front. We didn't have any money to drive that home, right? The fact that he took money from Russians, didn't have the money to drive that home, right? And I didn't have any money to drive home the fact that he took a speech out of context. And he was saying, oh, well, that's just, you know, Brian Mass is one of our seditionist congressmen. Right? So who was inciting violence? Not me, him. Who was anti-patriotic? Not me, him.
0: But you know, here's He's the an an thing: person. like all this shit, Pam, is like all what when it came down with you, it was so fucking petty. Like that's what the that's ultimately what it was. It, it was it was petty as fuck. And i I'll, I'll give you one, I'll give you one direct example, just in my experience, right? when I was reporting on the lack of vision in the DCCC, like in the leadership, but I I interviewed some people at the DCCC, and I sent some questions to their, and this is actually the first time I'm talking about this. And so I sent some questions to their people. Now, I am somebody who has a little bit of skin in the game. And so I'm very keen, like when people, when I say, I wanna talk to your leadership, People normally send me like their chair, like their top person. For example, I have an interview coming out with Jamie Harrison, you know, Harrison next week. So when I say I want to talk to this person, they usually get me that person. If I want to talk to, to like top leadership, I'll talk to Schumer or whomever. For whatever reason, they decided not to give me their leadership. They decided to send me some, you know, a uh, our, our lower ranking comms person. That pissed me off. And it's not because I feel like I'm all that. It's like, you didn't take it seriously, right? And so I'm saying, I'm asking, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to put this to print that there are people in your party. And I talked to house rep, I talked to like uh, people in the house, and like this, they are saying that you fucked up and you're going to send me this person. Now, the person, I don't blame this lower ranking younger person because they didn't know any better and they're just doing their job. But they sent me this long list of things that they were doing. Like, you know what? We made extra gains here and there. Now, mind you, they lost seats, okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at, you. Yeah. They, they, they lost seats. And more importantly- They lost- Terrell, seats. I don't
1: mean to cut you off, but- Yeah. Yeah, but, 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 but look at how many brilliant black women candidates they had running for Congress in Red blues, right? Pat Timmons Goodson, Mia, uh, uh, Desiree Timms, uh, Dia, uh, Dr. Dia, what was, I forget Dia. I know you're talking about, yeah. Kenneth Allen, right? Like we had a whole cadre really strong uh jackie gordon mm-hmm. like we have this cadre of really strong black women candidates and every single one of us lost every single
0: one all in all y'all should have won and the thing because i'm looking at this and, and 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 so here's the thing they gave me this long list of things like this long statement and i didn't publish any of it and so this guy calls me and it was like your your story wasn't balanced yeah now mind you i spoke with um um, Clyborne, you know, so I spoke with the people I needed to speak with, right, and there, and, and so this guy from the DCCC was like, you know, you didn't run our little statement, and so I'm like, it was a brother, so I was like, bro, look, this ain't got nothing to do with you, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, like, school you on how you should think about this. Them white people put you up on that phone call to call me, to feed me this bullshit, and they wanted me to go for it and and I didn't and because it's always some white person above them you know I'm like okay he's inexperienced he doesn't know because like somebody who was seasoned they would never because I know all the comms people they would never do that to me so I'm like okay bro this is why I'm I'm not mad at you but here's what's going on with your party so what they tried to do with me was like they tried to send and it was so insulting like it was like they were talking to like a a freshman in uh college and so My point was that, and and you know what he told me? It was interesting. He was saying like, you know, usually they have a way of, if you don't print what they want, they get mad. I'm like, fuck them. You know what I'm saying? I don't give a fuck, you know? And so he was trying to like talk to me and like give me, like, I'm like, I understand, bro. Like, I'm not mad at you. But the larger point, which goes back to what you're saying, is that their leadership was just complete. they, They were just totally um aloof to the dynamics that were going on and nobody in the party seemed to understand stacy's blueprint and the reason why was that their leadership had no connection to it
1: right well that's because most of what was really happening was happening outside of the structure of the party yeah people have to understand the structure of the party is not democratic voters the structure of the party is Democratic members, members of Democratic clubs and caucuses. They have, uh, you know, uh, they have their little clubs and caucuses and that floats up to a county to a Democratic executive committee and then it's committee chair people who choose the state Uh, chair, and then it's the state chairs who choose the national chair. That is all a structure, but the the working element of the Democratic Party is a Democratic club, and a Democratic club is a social meeting. In Florida, it's like 40 people who meet once a month. They do their 50-50 raffle. The candidates come and speak to them, and they are there to, to have each other's company, yeah <laughs> that is not a voter contact machine the way they try to do voter contact in the democratic party here in florida is through precinct captains so volunteers who live in a neighborhood and volunteer to be a precinct captain and they're supposed to knock the doors of their neighbors and get them to vote if you see the illogic of that thank you because that's not a great way <laughs> yeah, right. to now up, right that is not it right so 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 i have been putting a lot of thought into this and we can maybe talk about it in a minute but the reality is that our party is a social structure. It is a social club and it functions like one. And so the D Trip acts like a fraternity or a sorority who gets to decide who's going to be members. Because they understand how expensive it is to compete in a congressional race, and they choose whom they're going to spend on and whom they're not going to spend on, and it's not necessarily because of the strength of that candidate. It's whether they want that candidate to be their colleague. So if they think that you are part of the progressive team and you may be a problem for Nancy's speakership, then they're going to decide not to invest in you. If they decide that uh, you know you 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 supported Cory Bush and you didn't support this person, and therefore you were you know you 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 supported somebody who was primarying someone therefore and like it, they there's a sense, sense of ownership in the congressional seats where they believe that anybody who primaries them is somehow disloyal which i think is very problematic for me because even if you are a representative there may be somebody who's better right because it's about who reflects the mood of the people not so much who's currently in the seat but that's not our current political dynamics and so this is one of the things that i was always railing about because i think if you're a democrat the first thing you should love is democracy
0: <laughs> Duh, and the right, concept
1: right. of democracy <laughs> right is to say i i submit to the will of the people. I want the will of the people to be reflected. I want people to run. I want people to primary. I want people to be out there putting their two cents in the game. And I want the people to be engaged in choosing which person is the best person for them. But because of the battle construct that we're currently under in our partisanship, it becomes less about protecting democracy and more about protecting majority right and th- and then when you get in that mindset everything boils down to does this or does this not move the majority does this increase the majority does it protect the majority and so different kinds of decisions are made along those lines but there's still such a thing as brand democrat yeah right and and part of brand democrat is black women and they're constantly talking about black women being part of brand democrat right constantly and yet we don't have a single black woman in the United States Senate because the one we had floated up to vice president, thank God, but we ain't got no others. And it's not like we didn't have a whole bunch of talented black women running for US Senate. Yes, we do. But the DSCC is just like the DCCC. It is not interested in getting black women into the Senate. It is interested in winning Senate seats or retaining Senate seats. And whether that helps brand Democrat or not is irrelevant to them.
0: You wanna know something? And I wanted so- to. I wanna give you one direct example about this is I'll tell you the one where they blaringly messed up at was Charles Booker in Kentucky. So so here's the thing about Booker. Do I think that Charles Booker would have beaten McConnell? Probably not. Would he have made it a lot more interesting than Amy McGrath? Fuck yes. Okay, and so did you see how close that he, you know, he barely lost to Amy McGrath. Barely, right?
1: Given
0: how much money she had that's shocking but but it's it's the money but also Charles Booker won. they didn't invest in him enough um he wasn't covered enough until maybe what the final month or so after um you know it it was after um Taylor her last name is Taylor is the black woman who was killed Brianna Taylor. Taylor once that broke out in Louisville he gained more na- he gained more national prominence as, as as a result of being in the marches which Miss um, McGrath was absent from um pretty much and so when you spoke when you speak with Charles Booker, the way that he talked about movement and how he was talking to those white coal miners in Appalachia, he said. I go in there like a black man, like I'm talking to you, and they feel me because he says a whole bunch of white people who feel some type of way about being screwed over by the cops too. And he he and he he's 30, he was 30, what, 35, 36 at the time. I mean, he was so dynamic. He had everything. And he put and he hit all the national notes. And the leadership in the you know, in, in in the party were just kind of like, man. And it was the most expensive lesson, one of the most expensive lessons that I think Democrats learned during this cycle. But I think there's also this larger issue where, and I, you know, I'll be talking about it more, but um, the thing about black women that the irony of, of the resistance towards primary challengers is that part of the Democrats' success is disruption you know, and black women have historically been disruptors. Yeah. Okay. So, so the irony of resisting disruption, which is the genesis of how black women have been able to step into the scene, you know, and change things around, but you don't want this for your own party. Like it 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 was weird because it was like, okay, I don't know how they're going to, It was like a, it's a threat to their power, basically.
1: Of course, but that's exactly right, Terrell. That's what I've been talking about all this time. I am a student of power. Power fascinates me, right? And so what happens to people who get into power, especially in places like Congress, is that at first they go in altruistic, sure that they're going to do great for their constituents and believe that they're going to do a great job and they're going to fight for it. And then what happens? is that they start to convince themselves that they are the only ones who can represent their constituents the right way. And so therefore, mm-hmm. it's important to the constituents that they stay in power. And what happens is that there's emerging that occurs in their psyche where what is best for the constituents is them and they are what's best for the constituents. And so protecting their own power now becomes justified in their mind by serving the people. While they're at the same time taking from people the power to pick someone else. So it becomes this thing where you start Mm -hmm. to have this ownership stake. Over your seat and you start to think of it as your property And, and not only that, but you justify that by saying I I alone I alone can represent this district. Right. And some of that is based is natural naturally flows from building seniority and relationships and all this other stuff right but the system corrupts it necessarily does. It necessarily and that, I'm not saying that you're all corrupted people. I'm just saying the system itself corrupts the way you think. It has to, it does. It's natural. And you want to stay in it. People love the job, they love the gig, they want to stay in it. That's okay, cool. I get that. But at the end of the day, what ends up happening is that we start to take on anti-democratic you know behaviors in defense of democracy and that ain't that that cannot that does not work. And it cannot work. And so I just, I, I, I am so excited to see the Jamal Bowman's and the Mondaire Jones and the Cory Bushes out there because they came in their way doing their thing. And I think that that's great. And people are starting to see that that's actually really, really cool to have like all these different uh, people who represent different constituencies and life experiences. Mm-hmm. Diversity is not just race. Diversity is life experience diversity too. Cory Bush was homeless for a while. That's an important component to have at the table when we're making decisions about housing. Like, it, I want her there, right? So that's, that's the kind of thing that I see um, perhaps changing in the younger generations. The reason I am optimistic about younger generations is that they're not particularly interested in authoritarian structures. They're not big believers in party and party membership. And they, they are not patient in, in asserting themselves and their power. Right, they're not gonna, they're not gonna wait like my generation did. We ain't, they ain't waiting their turn. They're gonna take their turn, and I'm cool with that because I would rather our world look like what they want than our world looking like what my generation wants. <laughs> so I'm okay with.
0: But tell us about what you're doing though, like now, because now you're you you got some plans going on in regards to you know um, what you want to do um, in, in the state of Florida. So talk to us about that.
1: Well, everybody keeps saying, well, does Florida have a Stacey Abrams? And I'm like, no, Florida has a pancake. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what Stacey wanted to do um, is what I want to do, which is she, she looked at her state and said, we're not doing the things that need to be done to get the votes we need to win. We're just not doing it. And our party is not structured to do that work. The Georgia party is structured just like the Florida party is structured, not designed for voter contact. Right? So you have to stand up something that is in the business of voter contact. And that is what Stacey Abrams did in Georgia. And that is what I am doing in Florida. I am standing up an organization, uh, uh, basically a PAC, if you will, that's going to raise money, and and create, and hire, and, and rent space, and put wheels under the effort of voter contact and voter creation. In my mind, there are three missions to winning elections. Three, one, make Democrats. Democrats, you have to have numbers. You have to have increase numbers of people who are Democrats. Number two, motivate Democrats. That is about the sort of year-round stuff that you do that makes them happy or makes them angry. And, and that's a dual mission of making people want to be Democrats or motivated to be Democrats and also demotivating Republicans it's it's a two two prong thing there and then the third is the turnout game right which is the X's and O's of getting to your voters and getting them to the polls and getting them to, to vote by mail or whatever right those are three different missions in Florida our party has focused almost entirely on mission three it has virtually no component in ver- in you know mission two and it is absolutely zero on mission one. Because the states that had natural infrastructures that create Democrats and Democratic thinking don't exist in Florida because they were intentionally squashed. What are the mechanisms that create Democrats? Unions, teachers, social structures, churches, being around liberal people, being around cities and diverse cultures, all of those things are squashed in Florida. We are right to work state. There are hardly any unions, and most of them are very, very powerless. There is there is the, the the natural social dynamic of speaking about politics and speaking about issues that you would see in a New York or DC or whatever, you do not see in Florida. It is verboten to talk about politics in public, especially if you are a Democrat. They, it's frowned upon. The, in Florida, the default TV station is Fox News. If you go to a dentist's office, you're going to see Fox News. If you go to the golf club, it's going to be on Fox News. It is not considered the right news or right wing in Florida. It's considered the news in Florida. It is ubiquitous, right? Is MSNBC a, a, a counter to Fox News? No, it's not. And it's even if it, even if you thought it was, it's not present in Florida, and it's not right because msnbc tells you the news with a slight left bent it doesn't spend its time debunking fox news and that's what's missing by the way we need a unfox fox news we need an opposite we don't have an opposite and we need one and we need a big opposite which is another mission for another day but That is key. So you don't have public, Florida is dominated by charter schools. So you don't have the public schools and public school teacher structure as strong as it is in other states. It is socially verboten to speak out democratic, especially if you're a Democrat. Most Democrats don't know that they're living around other Democrats, unless they're living in big cities, right? And even our big cities have these pockets, these ethnic ethnic, um, pockets and correlations that break across party lines. So if you're in South Florida and you're a Cuban Democrat, you are as likely to vote for a Cuban Republican because they're Cuban, right? And it's about sharing power within your community. Same with the Haitian. A Haitian person will vote for a Haitian Republican or a Haitian Democrat because it's about maintaining power in the Haitian community. Well, are we thinking through that? Obviously not. So what I'm doing is is saying, hey, Stacy had a vision on how to get to Democrats in Georgia and and know that there are a third of the population is natural Democrats because people of color ought to be our natural Democrats. Why? Because we know when we see racism, it's natural self preservation. Same with gay people. They know the people that don't like them. It's natural, right? There's young people who are natural Democrats, right? But we're not getting to them. And we're not mobilizing them. And we're not connecting their survival with our party with voting for our policy. And it is that disconnect that is the problem in the state of Florida. The GOP is thinking very strategically about increasing the number of Republicans in the state of Florida. Rick Scott, back in 2008, started a program for recruiting veterans to the state of Florida. Why? Because veterans at the time were voting you know, six to four Republican. So he used state tax dollars to recruit veterans to settle in Florida. He used state tax dollars to recruit seniors to settle in Florida, but he advertised in red states. So he knew he was bringing red seniors to Florida. Question, who's advertising in blue states to bring blue seniors to Florida? No one. Question, whose job is it to make sure that young people who get registered register to vote Democrat? Whose job is, who, whose mission is that?
0: No one. Right, yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. So, so my thing is, if we have any hope of competing in Florida, we have to act like we're competing. And if we're going to act like we're competing, we have to put in structures that actually do the work of increasing the number of Democrats, getting them motivated and getting them to the polls. And we don't have that structure. And the Florida Democratic Party cannot be made into that structure because the people who are the members of the party don't want to take on those jobs. They're volunteers.
0: Yeah, they there's no there. infrastructure for it. Yeah, there's no, no infrastructure.
1: infrastructure. For that. So you got to build it. And that's what I'm doing.
0: So, so when can we expect the site to be up?
1: So we're looking within the next five to 10 days of getting the, the, the website, the, the act blue, the, all of the structure up. And then we're just gonna, and I have a prospectus that is hitting the ground on probably Monday or Tuesday, um, that really lays out the X's and O's of how we win Florida. I identify where are the black votes that we need to bring to the table that are not. We have about 900,000 black Floridians who are of voting age and not registered to vote. We can find them even if it's by onesies and twosies that matters. Um, We have 1.25 million teens that are gonna be eligible to vote in the 2022 election that are not currently registered to vote. Whose job is it to make that happen? It's ours. So I've put together a plan to make that so, to encourage teens to register as Democrats and vote as Democrats, using their mechanisms and their expression and their social media to make that happen. We have a whole bunch of immigrants that come to our state from the Caribbean and from elsewhere in South America. Most of the time, the first thing they encounter is a welcome to Florida from Ron DeSantis, right? Where is our game where we interface with new people coming to Florida? We don't have anything in that space. We don't have any relationship with the citizenship class schools or the language schools. Why not? Don't know. We should. We should. That's Right? We have no branding and no public presence in the state of Florida at all. Why? Because we don't have trucks or or, or vans with Democratic messaging. We don't have t-shirts with Democratic messaging. We don't have billboards with Democratic messaging. So people just don't see it. You know, to my way of thinking, every food bank in the state of Florida ought to have a Democratic booth outside so that when people are standing in line for food, they are encountering Democrats saying, we're voting for the money to make sure you don't ever have to stand in this line again.
0: That that sounds like something that I would definitely support. And so, wow, we, we did a show, Pam. So thank you for coming on. Awesome. And thank you all for listening to black diplomats podcast and please support us by going to your favorite podcast platforms including spotify and itunes and giving us a five-star rating and search black diplomats on patreon and support us there as well so thank you very much and we'll talk to you all next week